Welcome to the Fearless Fostering Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Burst, LCSW, a foster and adoptive and bio mama and a therapist in private practice. I'm here to help foster mamas feel seen, heard, and supported on their journey. From quick, actionable steps to make your foster care journey easier to interviews with foster and adoptive mamas, the Fearless Fostering Podcast delivers education and encouragement weekly. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Fearless Fostering Podcast. I am your host, Kathleen Burst, LCSW, and I'm so excited for you to hear from a fellow foster mama and my IG friend, Dorothy Mendoza, today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Kathleen. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your family's foster care journey and how you guys got started with fostering. Yeah. So my husband, Chris, and I have been licensed for three years. We've had nine children placed in our home. Uh, Two of those are current. And so we've had uh, seven goodbyes. And um, only one of those was because of a reunification. We got started because we were really passionate about reunification and keeping families together. And we really thought that's what we were signing up for. (laughs) But we've been kind of surprised at some of the other outcomes. I thought that I researched well (laughs) in the beginning, but the other outcomes and possibilities, you know, I think they're endless now that I've learned a lot. They're not talked about as much. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that you're willing to share because I know that you and I chatted a little bit before and just saying, I don't think a lot of people are aware of the various endings. I really think that most people, myself included until recently was like, okay, it's adoption, it's reunification. And that's it, like, you know, or to another like pre-adoptive home kind of thing. There's not really a lot that we hear about with other outcomes. So could you tell us a little bit about some of the stories that have happened for you where it's been none none of those (laughs) or different ones? Yeah. So we've had everything from transfer to fictive kin. So that meant that um, a little while into our placement, a family friend who was licensed became available. The child in this case was old enough to express that that's where he wanted to be. So we actually uh, kind of became champions for that and advocated for it. You know, just we learned very quickly that it was instinctual and the right thing to do to just put the child first and and kind of learn what their voice is and what they're wanting and put that first. We've had children who have been in need of therapeutic level homes where we kind of figured that out after a little bit of time and learned to advocate for that. You know, we're not a therapeutic level home. We're not qualified for that. And when it's kind of like a safety issue and we're struggling to keep the child safe, it's so important to advocate for what they need and um, the environment that they need, but those are really hard. And um, we've had, we had a unique situation where a a bio parent uh, contested Jeopardy very early on and actually won. Um, So we very unexpectedly got a call, like um, this child's going home. And then unfortunately the child re-entered care very shortly after that. So sad situations, you know, like that you, you can't really see coming. Um, We've had kids transfer to kinship placements, you know, a little bit into the, the placement where that's always an awesome thing where, kinship comes forward and they get to go live with blood relatives. We had an interesting situation where an opposite uh, parent got custody. So not the parent that the child was removed from or familiar with. And so that parent was found and was granted custody. And it was kind of quick, like, guess what? You're moving. (laughs) And we've seen uh, some of these things happen to keep siblings together. And some of these things happen where it actually meant that the children were going to be separated. And so that's, that's always a hard one. And then our, our hardest of them all was probably when a 
transfer to an adoptive relative happened, but it all didn't start happening until post TPR when the child was in our home for a long time. Okay. So we're going to talk about all those things. <laughs> um, Cause I know that when you and I first started talking, I do want to start with just that, that story, because I know when you and I first connected, that was um, kind of a similar story. Only yours was post TPR and ours TPR had not happened yet. And gosh, I mean, how long had you had that child in your care before the relative even entered the scenario? So it was interesting because the relative was aware and in contact with us throughout the entire placement. So had my cell phone number, we were in contact. Um, We had been trying for a long time to just involve them like we did with uh, all of the the relatives that we knew of. You know, I think that's so important um, as like a baseline. I'm always asking, I'm probably annoying, but I'm always asking caseworkers like, do you know of any relatives? Is there anybody safe that we can be in contact with? Because, you know, we see all the research about the biological connections and how good that is for a child. So we had done that from the beginning and there was a lot of inconsistency. So we were kind of shocked when they came forward. It was after a year, it was like month 15 or 16 that they um, had kind of come forward and said, like, we want to do this. So it was kind of shocking to us. Yeah. Why? I I mean, who knows the answer to this question, but why do you think they waited until after TPR to say that they were interested in uh, adopting the child? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wish I wish that we I all did. knew all the answers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think it's awesome. I think some of it is maybe lack of awareness to how that could affect the child. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that we've kind of been through this whole experience, you know, obviously something we think about a lot. I think we've kind of been shocked and, and looking at the fact that it kind of seems like sometimes biological relatives are okay with their uh, relative being in foster care, but not really okay with the people who have been caring for them, adopting them, which is interesting. And, you know, not something I've ever been in. I've never been in those shoes. So yeah, it's just been an interesting dynamic. Yeah. I feel like that could be, I mean, and that's kind of why I asked you the question. Cause I mean, I wonder on our end too, with our son who we've now adopted, but as well as our daughter who we're fostering, it is curious and just makes me think like, huh, like what is the, you know, what is the thought behind that, behind letting a child be in foster care and being like, quote unquote, okay with that versus like, okay, now this child who's been in this one home being adopted by this family is now a a kind of more unacceptable thought or whatever. So it's, yeah, I mean, and and we don't judge that we hold space for it, but it is as the parent who (laughs) is caring for that child, it's incredibly difficult. So yeah. Thanks for being honest about that. <laughs> yeah. We, on this situation, we actually had an interesting dynamic. Like we had been kind of on the road to adoption before this because TPR had happened. But prior to TPR, we had built a relationship with mom. We had been working towards reunification. That was our hope. That was our prayer. So we built this relationship with her. And before mom had agreed um, to the termination of her parental rights, she had a conversation with us and said, you know, just very rawly that she thought that she would have a great life with us. And we had this real, you know, sobbing conversation (laughs) where she, you know, said, you know, basically I want you to raise my daughter. Mm. And so that was something that was so hard to let go of. We had, we were very prayerful once, once we were kind of shocked that these adoptive relatives came forward, 
we were very prayerful about it and we were voicing a lot of concerns. Visitation had happened, um, started happening at that point, And we were voicing some concerns that we didn't feel like were taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And so we actually decided to contest the transfer in court. Mm-hmm. Um, and our motivators for that were really mom. We, we really mm-hmm. could shake the fact that uh, what mom's desire and mom's choice for her child wasn't holding any grounds in court. We, you know, we understood, you know, legally that, you know, once TPR happens, but to just see that happen and nobody advocated for her and what she wanted was so hard to let go of. And it really pushed us to, to speak up. And then also the child, like we had loved her so much and, you know, gotten to know her for so long and she wasn't old enough, you know, to say where she wanted to be, but we knew her and we knew her well enough to see the feelings that she was expressing. And so we really felt strongly that we had to be her voice. And we were up against a statutory law in our state that says that blood relatives must be preferred at the earliest possible time. We knew this going in. And just for the record, like we don't disagree with that. We absolutely mm-hmm. believe that that kinship should be preferred at the beginning of cases. It should be pursued and exhausted. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with this particular law was that it gives no parameters for what the earliest possible time means. And that was a really long time in this case. And so we, we knew that it was going to be really hard and we were up against a lot, but we really decided to move forward. And we were noticing that this trauma was unavoidable for our daughter, or it was avoidable rather. So kids at this point, really, like we watch this all the time as foster parents that they've already lost so much and we can read so much about the trauma and we can be so informed about the trauma of them losing their first family. But what about their second? And, and what about when they're losing their second family and it's not to return to their first family? That, that's avoidable. And so nobody's really talking about that. And we just felt like we needed to speak up. We knew uh, that the odds were slim, but we wanted to still be considered as an adoptive option. And we were kind of told that court was the only way to do that. So we hired a lawyer. We went to court for about a year. It was a very hard year. Um, Our friends and our family testified. Uh, We hired expert witnesses to um, talk about compounding trauma, Uh, multiple adverse childhood experiences, the loss of primary caregivers at the age that she was, and we still lost. Mm -hmm. So we lost a placement hearing in April of 2021, and that's when she was transferred. So we said goodbye to her right before her second birthday. Mm -hmm. And then we took it one step further after that. We our adoption petition had still been pending. So we had the right to one more hearing. So we just kind of walked through that door and took the opportunity to speak up again. Mm -hmm. And we lost again. And then the judge removed our petition without prejudice in November of 2021. Mm. Okay. Well, I am all the way crying over here because that is just so much, but thank you for sharing that because like, I hate that you had to walk through that. I love that you were so for what mom wanted and that you had that conversation with mom. And my heart is just ripped open that nobody like list, like, it's like you say you want to give preference to bio family. Well, here's the woman whose womb this baby came from. And she is saying, I want this family. This is my choice for my child. And then the fact that you guys were willing to fight. And still, I mean, that's what I think is, you know, one of the many things that can just be so 
just frustrating to say the least about foster care. It's like, we want to advocate for these kids. We want to advocate for bio families and we do, and we put our whole heart and soul into it. And when something like this happens, and like you said too, I mean, I was just talking about this with someone the other day, like the first, I mean, what we know about trauma and attachment is also the both. And yes, it's the birth family and removal from the birth family, of course. But as you said, very eloquently, it is also the second family and at the certain, at a certain age, I mean, really, I don't know how it is in, in your state, but in my state, Connecticut, they are like, we're trying to get everything accomplished fully, like permanency established by 15 months of age. Because what we know about trauma and attachment and the brain and development is that any longer than that, that those consequences are going to be staggering for that child to overcome. Yes, they already have trauma, but like you said, the later trauma is avoidable. So how do you reckon with that? I'm sitting here sobbing. You have obviously lived this story how did you and your husband, you know, manage on the other side of, of all that you tried to do and all that you did do and to still end up with her going to that placement? Yeah, well, it hasn't been easy at all. I think, you know, some practical things that we've been doing, we've been in grief counseling ever since just learning uh, to not be her parents anymore is such a difficult thing. You know, we've had lots of kids come and go, uh, but this was our longest placement. She was here since infancy, you know, and the total placement was 20 months long. We didn't remember life without her. We didn't remember, you know, what it was like to, to not care for her. And so we've been in grief counseling and just really trying to prioritize our mental health. One thing that's really helped me in general, you know, I think I, have struggled a lot with, there are a thousand things when I think about the case and, you know, try to try to reconcile this in my brain. There are a thousand things that I feel like from my perspective went completely wrong, you know, just injustices and um, balls that were dropped, caseworker turnover, GALs that didn't visit, um, testimonies that were inaccurate. You know, I can point to so many different things and it would be really easy to be angry at each of those individuals, but I've been really trying to work on viewing the whole system as a whole, you know, cause I think the attitude easily can become the system is broken. This is horrible, you know, and I'll be honest, we really wanted to quit after this. We wanted to just be like, no more. Cause it, it feels like in those moments, I can't survive this again. You know, I'm barely hanging on now. I can't do this a second time. And it's so likely that it'll happen a second time. And so I've been really trying to really view the whole system. Like through the lens of the gospel, like every person who is involved in this case was involved in this case, including myself is a broken sinner. And so a system run by broken sinners is going to be broken and there are going to be mistakes made. And, you know, just trying to view it that the whole thing needs God's redemption. The whole thing is the reason Jesus died. And, and it, it helps so much to move closer towards forgiveness and love rather than sitting in that anger because it's so easy to go there. Mm. Oh, that is such a good reminder for all of us um, who are entering into this work and just everyone in general. But I think that is such a healthy move spiritually and mentally to not, like you said, sit in that anger, to prioritize your mental health, to really, like you said, see the system as a whole, like, yes, like I always, that's what I say too. I'm like, the, the system isn't broken. Like, yes, it is, but it's the world. The world is broken. And when we say we're going to step into this hard thing, we're, we're stepping, we're saying, I, I acknowledge the brokenness of the thing 
that I'm stepping into and I'm still stepping into it. So you kind of hit on my next question a little bit. Like, how did you say like, okay, yes. So this ripped my heart out, but let's go for this. Let's keep going with this. I mean, I think natural human emotion and, and limits would, you know, for a lot of people be like, yes, we did what we could do. We tried our best. We fought till the end. We, we fought the good fight and now we are done here. And so what convinced you or, or challenged you or encouraged you and your husband to make a different choice? Yeah. So I think one of the practical things that played into it a lot when we weren't, when our feelings weren't necessarily matching up with continuing, we, we weren't feeling that way at first at all, but through our trial, like our physical court trial, we had actually said yes to another child. So that child was in our home. And so it was, it made it more difficult to look at this other little girl that we love so much and be like, oh yeah, actually we quit. You know, that, that wasn't, that wasn't something we were going to do. And, and I think that was very orchestrated by God. Cause I think if we were looking at an empty house, we might've thought differently, mm-hmm. but we kind of, it just ended up being a ripple effect. We, you know, had more space at that point. So we said yes again, and we haven't had an empty home since. <laughs> wow. Hey guys, I just wanted to let you know really quickly about some amazing free resources for foster mamas on my website, fearlessfostering.com. I have a self-care quiz that will help you decide exactly what type of self-care you need at this point on your foster care journey, as well as a virtual retreat for foster mamas and an anxiety reducing email course all for free. Check it out right now on fearlessfostering.com. Okay. So what kind of encouragement can you give to a foster mama who might be like staring at a really like long, hard road ahead, like you had, and just, you know, or feeling like we just lost a child to an unsafe situation or to a huge surprise situation or situation we didn't agree with. What can you, how can you encourage them to kind of stay with it? Yeah. I think two things come to mind. I'm really learning, you know, I'm kind of a person who likes things to sort of fit in a box and be organized. And I like to try to justify things in my head. And I think I'm kind of learning that faith doesn't always clean up the situation. You know, I might not ever agree with what happened. I might not ever believe that my daughter losing two sets of parents in the first two years of her life was best for her, but that's what faith is. It's looking at what we see physically and still believing that God has a good plan. And so the second thing that I've really been so thankful for is that even in your biggest moments of defeat, when, you know, I'll be honest, I've had moments in the fetal position on the ground, just not knowing how I was ever going to get up, but the story is never over. Like with God, anything is possible. And I think I've just been blown away. One of the things that's happened recently is we've become in contact with her again. And this is something that, you know, we felt like this was the biggest risk factor of taking this road, making this choice. We thought like, well, it's going to be all or nothing. Like we're, we're taking these people to court. They're not going to be happy about that. And we've just been like shocked that recently that door has opened And so that's been really hard too to see her again. We've had a couple of visits with her and just learning this new role in her life has been interesting for sure. You know, to look at this little girl that, you know, I held when she was teeny tiny and, you know, loved, and she used to call me mama is, is way different now. And it's not at all what we wanted, but we still have an opportunity to love her. And I don't know what God is going to do. I don't know what comes next. I don't have to feel the pressure to figure out what comes next. 
We just do the best that we can. And we, you know, follow our convictions and speak up for what's right. And no matter the outcome, the bottom line is that anything could happen. You know, the story's not over yet. Yeah. That's such a good encouragement and making me cry again. (laughs) Um, I just, I feel like that is, is such a good reminder for all of us. And I take it to heart myself that like, you know, we have our um, lawyer for our son's, you know, case, he, she called us the day that TPR was granted and said, okay. So I was like, oh, does this mean that like we can adopt him like that? We're going to adopt him. And she was like, yes. Like, and, you know, and I'm like, this is not true. Like that's not, you know, I mean, I think for, she knew the case, she knew the ins and outs, but like what you're saying is anything can happen before TPR, after TPR, like we do not know. And if we can just get to a place in our faith and, and, and find strength to be able to say, I don't know. I don't know the answers and I don't have to know them. Like you said, we don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to know what's even next tomorrow. I can just sit knowing that like, I have what I need today to show up for the kids who are in my home today. And that's all that I have to figure out just today. Yeah. Oh, so good. Well, thank you just for sharing that. I would love for people to be able to connect with you online. So where do you share about your story and your foster care journey? Where can people find you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Dorothy Grace Mdoza, M-D-O-Z-A. Um, you can find me there and we, we share a little bit about our story there. Thank you so much for all of the wisdom and the insight and just the personal testimony that you shared today. It is so powerful and encouraging and I just really appreciate you. Thank you so much.